As you take your seats, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We'll read our passage together this morning in Galatians chapter 2. First, let me just say, as you know, our pastor is still out of town on vacation. We're praying him and his family have a wonderful time together. I'm grateful for the privilege of bringing to you God's Word to you this morning. I know what you're thinking. Oh man, I forgot this is the tip week Andrew's out of town. The, uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning and the, the topic we'll be discussing is adequately summarized in exactly what we just sang. If you're wondering what the key is to unlocking fearless love in your relationships, it's what we just sang. Look and see our God and the power of the cross and the empty grave. Now we're free. Let the redeemed lift up their heads and see our God. Read with me in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Starting verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for your word. We ask that you use it in our hearts, in our lives. We want to be freed to live and love others selflessly fearlessly. So God, we're asking that you do the work in our hearts that that requires. We cannot change ourselves, Lord. May your gospel change us as we look and see our God, as we behold your glory. Let us be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweat was dripping from his forehead. Christian man stands in the courtroom to defend his integrity and his honor. He looks to the judge's bench. He speaks with passion. He tells of his character. He turns to the jury box. He looks to where they would sit. He speaks of his integrity. He pounds his fist on the table, he, pleading in his voice, tears in his eyes, the black and white clock ticking 
on the back wall chops out segments of time as he declares that he is just in this matter. It is his most excellent and convincing performance, deserving of an Oscar or an Emmy. But no one was there to see it. No one. There is no judge behind the bench, no jury behind the box. The lawyers had packed up their briefcases and gone to lunch. No recorder in the panel, no observers in their seats. He stood alone in the courtroom, alone, pleading his innocence because everyone else had left long ago after this man was declared innocent and released from custody as a free man. And here's the thing. This isn't a story about a courtroom because this courtroom was only in this man's head. This is a story about this man's relationships. The courtroom scene is really just representative of what was happening in his head while this man was supposed to be somewhere else other than the courtroom. He was free, forgiven, justified by God, and was supposed to be celebrating his anniversary with his wife. But he was worried about what his wife thought about his leadership and what the people at the pool thought about his abs. The courtroom scene is just representative because he's supposed to be at his daughter's birthday party. But he was back in the courtroom again in his mind, trying to justify to his friends why they still had this old table and such a small TV compared to everyone else. It happened when he was supposed to be at his son's baseball game but he was in the courtroom in his mind trying yet again to justify himself before his friends why he and his wife still hadn't been to Hawaii, even though everybody else their age had. You see, the courtroom is only in his mind, but his preoccupation with what everyone else thought of him, that he looked right, was very real. And it kept him from being present, from caring for others selflessly, fearlessly, because he was afraid of what everyone else thinks of him. It skewed his perception of his everyday interactions with others. Now, this would be a really strange story if it wasn't so common to us, if we didn't identify so closely with it. It'd be easy for us to laugh at him if we didn't know in our hearts we're laughing at ourselves too, aren't we? It's hard for us to admit that we think as much as we do about what we think other people think of us. Preoccupation with what other people think of us distracts us from what really matters, and it stems from failing to remember what God thinks of us. Peter knew this struggle well, as did Paul. In our passage today, we'll we're going to see Peter struggling in the same way in these verses and Paul laying down some correction in his letter to the Galatians. Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. This would be modern-day Turkey. This letter is primarily focused on the Galatian error in their own spiritual growth in which they're more concerned with external rules and regulations as a means to be justified than they are focused on the work that Christ has done on their behalf. There were legalistic teachers in Galatia urging the Galatians not to listen to Paul 
And so, in this entire first section of the letter to the Galatians, Paul is defending his apostleship, proving his authority as an apostle of God to tell them what the gospel is and to warn them that they're walking out of step with it. Paul displays his authority to tell them what the gospel is from the first verse of the book. It's probably right there. You can just flip back a page. Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So right off the bat, right, first kick of the game, and Paul is like, listen, my authority is not from me or from men. My authority is from God. You better listen. I have the authority to tell you what the gospel is, and I have the authority to warn you that you got it wrong. If you look just a few verses before our passage this morning, you'll see Paul is still defending his apostleship. He's telling of his trip to Jerusalem to visit the other apostles. In verse 9, look at Galatians 2, verse 9, he says, When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul's defending his apostleship, making it clear not only did he have James and Cephas, that's Peter's blessing and John's blessing in his ministry, but now in the passage that we look at this morning, coming right after that, he also demonstrates his God-given apostolic authority to openly oppose Peter in Antioch when Peter was walking out of step with the gospel in his relationships with others. The main point of the passage, Paul's defending the gospel of grace against legalism in his letter to the Galatians. That's the very issue that was at stake in his confrontation of Peter that he describes here. This passage shows how justification is by faith And that means that as believers, we don't have to try to live in such a way that we justify ourselves before God or before other people. And we'll look this morning at how that played itself out in Peter's relational issues. If you think that you and your friends got issues in our passage, we're going to look at how Peter was afraid of what one group of friends thought of him, so he gave the cold shoulder to another group of friends, which caused a bunch of his other friends to stumble into sin because of the whole thing. And even his fellow church leader is then a hypocrite following his leadership, and then Paul has to step in and confront Peter publicly in front of all of his friends. So if you think you have relational issues, well, welcome to the struggle bus this morning. We're all in this together, and we're in good company with Paul and with Peter and the saints in Antioch and Galatia. Together this morning with Paul as our bus driver, we'll look at their blundering relational struggles, and as we laugh at them on the outside, we will learn from them on the inside because we know that we're so much like them. We'll look at this passage, and from it, we're just going to glean and look at it from the lens of three ways to walk in step with the gospel in our relationships. Three ways to walk in step with the gospel in our relationships. First, beware your fear of man. We'll see that in verses 11 through 13. Beware your fear of man. Look at verse 11. It says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So Paul opposes Peter. Here, the name Cephas is 
This is, Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. The Greek word for rock is Petros or Peter. Of course, his given name is Simon, but Jesus had given him a new name to represent his leadership status in the church. Jesus told him, like, your new name is going to be the rock. This is why they should have gotten Dwayne Johnson to play Peter in The Chosen. So Paul is opposing Peter because Peter's messed up big time. Let's take a look at what he did, verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And then the results, verse 13, other people are stumbled. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So just kind of pull the car over here for a second. A little bit of background is in order. In the Old Testament, certain laws had been laid out for the Jews to follow at the time. This keeping of the laws, like rules about circumcision and dietary restrictions in Leviticus 11, caused the Jews to stand out in the world to show that they followed the Lord, they lived differently. When Jesus came, He fulfilled the law for us so that we no longer have to keep all the external rules about circumcision and dietary restrictions and sacrifices and these things. We now look differently because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ and it changes our hearts on the inside, consequently changing everything else about the way we live on the outside. And we look different because we follow the Lord. You're familiar with the story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, when this starts to dawn on Peter in this revelation from God. It's the one with the the sheet full of unclean animals, and God says to Peter, rise and eat. And Peter's like, I can't eat that. It's against Leviticus 11, Lord. And God says, Peter, who are you to call unclean what I've called clean? And Peter got the message. Not only is he now allowed to eat with Gentiles, but he's now allowed to preach the gospel to them. And they can be saved and become your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they don't have to follow the law. That was a massive turning point for Peter. As you can imagine, in his life and in his view of non-Jewish people, i.e. the Gentiles. After all of that, after all that happens... Peter goes to Cornelius' house, he eats with the Gentiles, he preaches the gospel to them, they get saved, and when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, where James is the pastor of the church there, in the next chapter, Acts chapter 11, there's this group there, and they're called, dun-dun-dun, the circumcision party. And they start criticizing Peter. Listen to Acts 11, verses 2 through 4. It says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So back there in Acts 11, Peter defended himself from the circumcision party's criticism and went on about his way, eating in fellowship with the Gentiles as was appropriate for a New Testament believer. But the circumcision party, man, they didn't like that. Peter's, Peter's probably afraid to be, Peter's probably right to be afraid of a group that has taken the name for themselves, the circumcision party. That doesn't sound like a party. Sounds like something out of a Stephen King novel, actually. It's terrifying. The point here is, 
there are factions in the church among believers. Some saying, no, you, yes, salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, but you need to be circumcised if you're going to follow the Lord. You need to obey the dietary restrictions if you're going to follow the Lord. After that whole experience, though, Peter defending the truth and everything, he's been eating with the Gentiles, but now here comes the circumcision party again, Paul tells us, to Antioch. Here they come, hobbling up the street, fear in their eyes. I don't know why I imagine the circumcision party hobbling. They don't seem like nice people. Okay, so... Now that we've got the background context here, right, let's, let's look again at verse 12. Look at verse 12, Galatians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, before certain men came from James, that's the circumcision party, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. So he gives the cold shoulder to the Gentile Christians now, and he, notice this, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter knows better. He received a revelation directly from God himself about this. He knows theologically what is right. He is shown by God himself. But pay close attention to why he does what he does. What prevents Peter from loving the Gentile Christians well? It's in verse 12. Fearing the circumcision party. Peter's not being motivated by his good theology here, though he knows what the truth is. He's being motivated by fear. What's really simmering under the surface of this whole interchange? Well, Paul cuts to the core issue. It's not really about dietary laws at all. Peter's motivated by fear of what other people think of him. Peter's afraid of losing what Paul talked about back in chapter 1. Take a look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Peter feared losing the approval of people, and it's causing a, a defect in his ability to live the life that God has called him to. Peter's a believer, a mature believer at that. This is a, an issue of sanctification for Peter. He's allowed the approval of people, or fear of man, we might say, to eclipse the reality of the gospel in his life. Like when you're driving west just before sunset, you know what I'm talking about? And you can't see the road clearly, and it's like you put the sun visor down, but it, the sun's lower than that, but then when you lift up, now you can't see the road, and you're like... You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. The fear of man is like blinding Peter to the road ahead. He can't make a good decision about where to go or what to do because he's acting on fear, not gospel. One author says it this way, Peter has allowed the approval of people to erode his grasp of the approval that the gospel gives and the settled status that justification provides. In other words, Peter, get out of the courtroom in your head, bro. You have already been declared innocent by the judge, legally acquitted, free, 
but you are still going back to the courtroom in your head to try to prove yourself righteous to other people, fighting for their approval. That's really a picture of us in a lot of ways, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, our preoccupation with what other people think of us often blinds us to the road ahead. Now, you're probably not tempted to start running around with a crew called the circumcision party. Just guessing here. You won't face a huge crisis of faith over Jewish dietary regulations. But if you can be honest with yourself for about 30 seconds, you know in your heart, you understand exactly what Peter was feeling in his hope to maintain the approval of others. I mean, have you stopped to think much about why your mood is so often dictated by the way other people respond to you? Why your mood is so often dictated by your grades in school or your annual job review or what your friends think of your home or what your parents think of your kids. One author says, what we all tend to do is walk through life amassing a sense of who we are as an aggregate of what we think everyone else thinks about us. We walk along, building our sense of self through all of the feedback pinging back at us. So we constantly face this temptation to shape and mold our lives around a consistent look that we believe will score us the the greatest number of smiles from others and thumbs up from friends and encouragement from our spouse and compliments and click-thumb hearts. You know what I'm talking about, the click-thumb hearts. We crave digital like notifications like kindergartners crave gold star stickers. Why? Approval. Approval of people. Deep down, we sense, we know, we are broken and sinful and failing in so many ways. And we're trying desperately not to let anybody else find out. If we projected on a Sunday morning for just 10 seconds some of the things that any of us thought this week, we would be mortified, embarrassed by some of the failures, even just in our mind, yet alone in our actions. And so, we set up our lives, our career, our relationships, our degrees, our promotions, our homes, our kids, our muscles to show that we're actually okay to try to prove to ourselves and to everyone else that we're okay, to try to medicate our guilt with approval of others. And this is where we have to hold the prescription glasses of the gospel up before our short-sighted eyes every day. Because the reason we're so concerned about the approval of people is because we've turned our attention away from the approval of God that we've been given in the gospel. We tend to start feeling that pull. You know when your car has like a bad alignment problem and you like feel like you're trying to pull in the other direction so you don't drive off the road? We feel that pull, the bad alignment of, of people's approval pulling our tires to one side of the road. We need to get a gospel alignment, get straightened out. 
This is why I don't say, beware the fear of man, as though it's out there, it's coming to get you. Well, that's the circumcision party. I say, beware your fear of man, because it's in here, and it's already getting us. And we need to preach the gospel to our sick hearts every day if we're going to stand any chance at all of breaking its death grip on our hearts. Otherwise, we will live by the approval of others. And when other people like us, we'll have a great day. And when people frown at us or they don't like the way we did this thing or it doesn't go the way we wanted to or that conversation is harder than we thought it was going to be or somebody posts some comment on our social media, we will wallow in the depths of sorrow because life is so bad because we didn't get the approval that we wanted. If we don't preach the gospel to ourselves, that's the way that we'll live. That's exactly what Paul's going to do for Peter and the others here. He's going to preach the gospel to them. As we look at three ways to walk in step with the gospel in our relationships, that's why we say, first, beware your fear of man. Seen that in verses 11, 12, and 13. Now we'll learn from Peter and Paul to remember your identity. Second way to walk in step with the gospel in our relationships Remember your identity. You'll see that in verse 14. Look at it with me. It says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We should address first, it seems harsh to us when we first read that, that Paul does this in front of everyone. Paul says, I said to Cephas before them all, you know, it'd be like me on a Sunday morning, like, John Filkey, come here, we need to talk about something. Listen, you're wrong. And like saying that in front of everybody, you're like, (laughs) awkward moment at Canyon Bible Church on a Sunday. Um, Yeah, that seems weird to us. We wonder, like, does this fail to line up with what Jesus said in Matthew 18? Like, shouldn't you confront your brother alone first? To ease the tension here, I would just say, remember that it really wasn't just Peter he's confronting here. If we look back at verse 13, we see, look at it, verse 13 says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul's confronting Peter because he led them into this hypocrisy, but they all sinned in this way. They all needed the same correction. Furthermore, 1 Timothy 5.20 actually says, as for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. People will follow an elder's example like they did with Peter here. So if an elder leads people into sin in some way. Everyone needs to know so they don't continue to follow him into sin anymore. Verse 14 says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel. Not just Peter's conduct. So Paul confronts Peter in front of the others, really confronting everyone so they could all be helped. You'll notice Paul does not say, I saw that their conduct was immature or I saw that their conduct was not walking in the Spirit. He says, 
their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The issue of their spiritual growth is solved not by discussing the surface-level issues of circumcision or Jewish dietary laws, but by getting to the heart of the matter and pointing to the gospel. Jews are known for their strict adherence to the law. Peter knows that because Christ came, believers no, no longer need to live that way, so he's been eating with Gentiles. The Jews would have seen this as the, the sinful Gentiles, but we're Jews over here. That's why Paul says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, you know as a Jew, you might want to keep the law, but as a, Jew, as a Christian, you know you don't need to anymore to earn God's favor. And so you've been ignoring the law, living like a Gentile. But now, now you're going to turn your back on Gentiles because they're not keeping the law? That's a problem, Peter. That's, that's why Paul's going to tell him he's a hypocrite. Because of his fear of the circumcision party, he's going to break fellowship with people who won't keep the dietary laws when he was breaking them himself. So Paul's basically saying, think about who you are, Peter. Yes, you're a Jew. Yes, you've been living like a Gentile. But more importantly, you have a new identity in the gospel. Paul's point here is regardless of whether you're identified as a Jew or a Gentile, the gospel has laid down a new identity for both Jews and Gentiles. That's why he says in verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Your walk ought to be defined not by whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but defined by your new identity in the gospel. They are out of sync with the gospel. We can do this too. We need to remember our identity in the gospel, not try to put it in other things. John Piper says on this passage, when you hear and believe the drumbeat of the gospel, the rhythm of your step changes. Let's say you're having a ball, not a ball like you kick, a ball. Everybody's coming to dance together. If you're thinking it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, then you're imagining the same ball that I am. But if not, that's okay. Just any old ball will do. Sorry, Andrew's gone. You got the ADHD preacher this morning. <laughs> but imagine you're hosting a ball. And in the midst of the ball and the room is full of people that are dancing, you look towards the back and you realize, man, those people in the back of the room, they're just not dancing in time with the music. Like these people up here seem to be doing fine. But all those people back there, like, and you realize it's because they can't hear the music very well. So you correct this by turning up the volume of the music. Now the people in the back can hear the music well, and now they dance in time with the music. What we like to do is instead go and tap people on the shoulder. Excuse me, you're not dancing in time with the music. Excuse me, that's not how you do this dance. See those people over there? You should try to do it like them. But what those people need is they need to hear the music more clearly. 
We need to turn up the music of the gospel in our lives. Remember our identity. Install subwoofers in your trunk if you have to, but do whatever it takes to hear the music of the gospel. Regardless of what you used to be defined by, as you continue to hear the truth of the gospel reminding you of your identity in Christ, you will walk in step with the gospel. That's why Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you therefore to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you remember our series last summer through Ephesians, right, when we talked about chapter 4, we talked about that's the whole hinge of Paul going from preaching the gospel to them to say, now saying, in light of the truth of the gospel, walk, live your life, chapters 4, 5, and 6, in a manner worthy of the gospel. So ask yourself, what is it that you're tempted to look at for your identity instead? Maybe not your ethnicity, like Peter, but maybe. Maybe it's your calling, maybe your physique, or your character, or your car, or your kids, or your friends. What is it you're tempted to look at to base your identity in? A butterfly Imagine coming out of the cocoon and thinking, I just can't wait to walk on the ground, right? That's not what butterflies do. That's not consistent with their new identity. They spent a long time crawling on the ground, but the cocoon has changed them. Now they have wings to fly. Believers, we spent a long time before we knew Christ walking on the ground, basing our lives on what everybody else thought of us, basing our identity on our car or our music or our hairstyle or our clothing or our friend group. We spent a long time crawling on that ground, but the cocoon of the gospel has changed us. We've been given wings to fly. We have a new identity. Remember your identity. That's why Paul takes Peter and all the believers who followed him into hypocrisy in Antioch and the Galatians in his letter to them and us this morning back to the gospel. He wants them to remember their identity. He wants them to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. Third, believe the gospel daily. This will change your relationships. If you believe the gospel daily, we'll see this in verses 15 and 16. Look at it with me. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, these verses are exactly what you need to hear. We as Christians don't think that we're better than everyone else because we live differently. We think we're just as bad as everybody else. Some of us are worse. 
but we've been saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, not by changing our behavior, not by living according to the morals of the Bible. That's not what saves us. Jesus Christ, His gift of salvation is what saves us. We put our faith in Jesus Christ, not our works, not our ability to be able to live a better life. We've turned from our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ. We'd urge you to do the same. But get this, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, these verses are exactly what you need to hear. I remember as a young believer, when the pastor came upon a verse like this, I would think like, man, Lord, I'm praying for all the unbelievers in the room. God, save some people this morning. They need to hear the gospel. And when we got to the gospel verses the next Sunday, I think this is for the unbelievers in the room. God saves some people. And that's totally appropriate. We should ask the Lord to save people when the gospel is preached, and He does. But what I failed to understand in my immaturity was that the gospel was for me too, because I was still trying to justify myself in a thousand ways in my daily life, not trusting, not believing the gospel daily. This is one of the most well-known gospel verses in the whole Bible, and I just want you to notice it's not written here as a call to unbelievers to get saved. It's here in the context of an internal church conflict about sanctification that he addresses by pointing mature believers back to justification, back to the gospel. It's not something you believe just to get saved, and then you move on to learn like bigger theological things. This is something that we as we continue believing, changes the way that we live every day. I'll quote one of my favorite pastors from church history, John Filkey. John said last week, God's gospel enables us to deal with momentary experiences because it assures us of the permanence of God's promises. Because God has promised to justify me by faith, I don't have to live my everyday life and think in my relationships about justifying myself in the way that I live. That's why Paul is taking these believers back to the gospel, and this isn't an isolated incident of this either. We see this a lot in Scripture, the apostles bringing the gospel to bear on the practical lives of Christians. In Romans 1.15, Paul told believers, people already saved by the gospel, Paul wrote to the, to the Romans, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. And in chapter 1, verse 17 of Romans, it doesn't say that the just shall be saved by faith. It says the just shall live by faith, by believing the gospel daily, by trusting Jesus and his promises every day, it changes every little incident, every little moment in my life. Colossians 1.23, Paul wrote to the believers in the church in Colossae to live their Christian lives in a way that was not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In Philippians 2, when Paul wanted to address a conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, two ladies in the church that were in apparently such a huge fight that Paul heard about it all the way down the street, right? Now Paul's writing to them about addressing this conflict between these two ladies, and the way that he does it is by taking them back to the gospel. And in Philippians 2, we get some of the best gospel verses in the whole Bible. Some of the best verses about Christ coming to earth and humbling himself 
and the glory that he receives. And that comes in the context of church conflict. Paul pointing believers back to the gospel. So we see over and over again that when the apostles wanted to help people grow spiritually, they did it not with clever advice, not with tips and tricks, not with external things to do. They did it by turning their attention back to the basics of the gospel. I think many mature Christians today, if they were in Paul's shoes, would have told Peter, Peter, you just need to go back to eating with Gentiles. External. Didn't get to the heart. Didn't talk about what really matters. Peter, it's permissible and don't worry about what anybody else thinks. External. We would have completely missed what the real issue was. Peter's hypocrisy is the result of fearing what other people thought about him and fearing what people thought of him was the result of forgetting what God thought of him. And forgetting what God thought of him is the result of losing sight of the gospel. I just think we need to learn to give better advice. So many of you are so good at this. I've seen this in our church. But I think we just have to be careful to stop telling people, you just need to have a weekly date night. That'll fix your marriage. You just need to spank your kids more consistently. That'll fix them. You just need to try harder to meet your husband's needs. You just need to buy your wife some flowers. You just need to make a list of things you're grateful for. Those are all external things. And notice, those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with any of those. But if we don't couple them with the power of the gospel, then we give people commands that they can't obey because they haven't been given the gasoline to run the engine. We have to stop putting external Band-Aid fixes on internal bullet wound problems. We're broke to the core, not just on the outside. It's not just our behavior that's broken. It's our hearts. That's why our behavior is so messed up. A little moral antibiotic tips and tricks are not going to do the job. Only the gospel can fix us on the inside. So we need to believe the gospel again. We need to believe the gospel daily, today. And tomorrow, when you find yourself back in the courtroom worrying about what that person thinks about you, you remind yourself that you stand justified before God in heaven and it doesn't matter in the slightest bit what this person thinks of me. So in a sermon about relationships, why am I telling you to believe the gospel daily? That's why. This is it right here. This is the, the quantum key to relationships. When we don't believe the gospel daily, we go into relationships needy. I need the approval of people. I need to feel good about myself. It's all about us. It's all about me. Then, even in the ways that I serve other people, because I'm supposed to be a servant, supposed to be servant-minded, I'm supposed to consider others as more important than myself. Okay, that's what I'm going to do right now. I'll give you the bigger bowl of ice cream. Fine. All of the ways that we seek to serve other people, it's really just about me. See how good I was? See how I considered others as more important? See how I'm doing? Does everybody see me serving? We make even the good things that we do about us. But what if you went into your friendships already okay? Like totally fine. No matter what happens in the friendship, you're okay. 
You don't need any kind of approval from your friends. What if you were just totally, radically free to just be yourself and be used by God in their lives and never care at all what they think about you? That's what the gospel does for us. When I know my standing in heaven is secure, when I know that I stand justified before the only one that matters, when I know I'm already okay, I don't need the approval of people anymore. What if you went into the job interview already okay? What if you went into the difficult conversation, the classroom, the ball game, already okay? What if you went into your marriage today already okay? Just totally fine because I'm justified by my Father in heaven. And so no matter how you respond to me, no matter where this conversation goes, whether my spouse meets my needs or not, my real need is met. I stand justified before God. I don't need anything from my spouse. Jay Gresham Machen said, there are those who are interested in what people say, but not enough in the question of what God says. Such people, however, are not those who move the world, they are apt to go with the current. They are apt to do as others do, but they will not be the heroes who change the destiny of our race. This will change your marriage if you get this. You don't need your spouse to do or be anything. You don't need their approval. You just need to walk in the Spirit, love the Lord, follow Him. Let him work in and through you in their lives. And no matter how they respond, you're already okay. You're justified. You don't need their approval. We ought to write love songs about this because it really frees you up to be able to love people when you don't care what they think anymore. It just doesn't sound very romantic. You're not everything to me, sweetheart. You are not my world. I'm complete without you. I'm something without you, and I can live without you. These kinds of songs, they don't really make it to the billboard charts. My life doesn't revolve around you. Although you might say that to your spouse sometimes, but not with the right heart, right? But what if that was true? What if, what if your life didn't revolve around them? I mean, think about this from their perspective. That's kind of a lot of pressure. You are my everything man, I really hope not. Because I'm not much, man. If I'm anybody's every, everything, they're in trouble, right? And that's kind of a lot of pressure on me. My world revolves around you. Man, I really hope not. It's when my, my world revolves around Christ that I'm able to love my wife well. It's when it doesn't matter what she thinks of me anymore because I know what he thinks of me, that I'm able to love my wife well. That's why Paul points him back to the gospel on this. He's fixing a relationship issue by going back to the gospel. Paul's correction is to remind them of something they already know. In fact, Peter's a mature Christian. He's been a believer for many years at this point. He's a missionary. He's a leader in the church. Peter wrote some of the New Testament. 
That's a good thing for us to remember that mature believers may still have a significant need for a major spiritual breakthrough in this. Don't think that because you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 or 50 years that you don't need to hear how the gospel ought to permeate everything that you do. This is about something you already know as a Christian. I'm not telling you anything new this morning. You don't need to learn anything new. You just need to see a new connection with something you already know. There's a lot of testimonies of this throughout church history. Martin Luther was a believer for years before he got this and said, I realize now that Christ is not only the way that we begin our journey, he is also the right and safe way we must walk to the end. Many people are familiar with the dramatic story of C.S. Lewis's conversion, but may not be aware he had what he would call an awakening to the gospel later in life. Afterwards, he wrote this. I love this. He says, for a long time, I believed that I believed in the forgiveness of sins, but suddenly this truth appeared in my mind in so clear a light that I perceived that never before had I believed it with a whole heart. Francis Schaeffer had a similar experience. He described the problem like this. For all the teaching that I had received after I was a Christian, I had heard little about what the Bible says about the meaning of the finished work of Christ for our present lives. I became a Christian once for all on the basis of the finished work of Christ through faith. That's justification. But the Christian life, sanctification, operates on the same basis, but moment by moment. You ever been vacuuming? You kind of vacuuming, and you've been going for a while. Maybe you got your headphones in, and you're just vacuuming along, and all of a sudden you realize, the vacuum cleaner dies. What happened? You know the answer. I went so far, I pulled the plug out of the wall, down the hall, around the corner, and in the kids' bedroom where I plugged it in when I started. Right? What do I need to do? Not keep vacuuming. A lot of Christians, right, we talk about we talk about living the Christian life in your own strength versus living the Christian life in the strength that the Lord provides. A lot of Christians are just dead vacuum cleaner. A lot of good that's doing you. How's that going? Great. I've vacuumed this room seven times. Look at all the vacuuming I've done, right? You got to go back to the plug, plug it back in again, right? That's the power. The Bible actually calls the gospel the power of God. Every day in our Christian lives, we need to remind ourselves of our identity. Believe the gospel again. Make sure that plug is securely plugged back into the gospel again so that we get the power of God. We need to believe the gospel daily. In a passage where Paul is defending the gospel from legalism, we see how Peter's actions and his relationships are not in step with the gospel. As a leader, that could drag other people into hypocrisy, and it did, but Paul's exhortation to Peter and to the Galatians becomes an example to us of how, how to walk, how to, our steps can sync up with the gospel in our relationships. So this morning, we've seen three ways to walk in step with the gospel in our relationships. First, beware your fear of man. Remember your identity. And finally, believe the gospel daily. And we need to hear this, don't we? Because we are so regularly tempted to go back into the courtroom in our minds. 
seeking to justify ourselves before others, so worried, so anxious of what everyone else thinks of us. So we try to justify ourselves and our behavior before others, sometimes before ourselves, often before God. So when you find yourself in your mind trying to go back into that courtroom, trying to prove yourself again, living in fear of what they think, craving their approval, remind yourself, remind yourself that in the gospel, you have been declared innocent. You stand justified before the God of the universe. You're okay. You no longer have to live in fear of what they think or crave their approval because you are free. The gavel has come down and you've been declared innocent and the court is adjourned. You've been dismissed and the courtroom is empty. So get out of the courtroom. Don't go back in there. Remind yourself of the verdict and live in the freedom of the gospel. Let's pray just that for us this morning. Lord, we confess to you, God, that so often our hearts cling to the approval of man. We think so much about what our friends think of us what the people online think of us, what our parents think of us, what our kids think of us. We think so much of what our spouse thinks of us and what everyone else thinks of us, God, that we, we don't stop to think about what you think of us. But Lord, you have caused us to stand before you holy and blameless, blameless with great joy. Lord, keep us out of the courtroom in our minds. And in so doing, God, as we preach the gospel of our justification to ourselves, may you receive glory from our lives as we are radically freed to love others sacrificially. Lord, use us to put your character on display in that way in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.